Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. I am Jan Fran. With me is Katrina Blowers. G'day, mate. Hello again. How so you, good to be back. Yeah, how are you feeling this morning? I'm feeling amazing. <laughs> I love that. No one ever says that at five o'clock in the morning, but you do, and that makes me very, very happy. I'm an early bird. It is a sickness. <laughs> Today on the show, he who must not be named. Why the media didn't, or rather, why it couldn't name Christian Porter as the minister accused of rape until... He named himself. We're going to take a look at Australia's strict defamation laws and what they mean for you. If you're going to write about you on a restaurant or with your dentist or, as you say, the mechanic, then there's a chance that they will come after you. Yeah, don't be saying anything nasty on Facebook. It could come back to bite you. (laughs) That's coming up in just a sec, though. But first, let's see what's making news today. Well, the Commonwealth's going to fund thousands of half-price airfares. Airline tickets to set locations around Australia will be slashed by half in a federal government bid to support our tourism industry. Yeah, so the tourism industry, I don't think I need to tell anyone, has taken a really uh, massive hit last year. So this particular program is going to run from April 1st to July 31st. 800,000 of the half-price tickets will be available to 13 locations. Okay, so there are some caveats here. Um, Some of the locations include the Gold Coast, Alice Springs, Launceston. They're basically routes that have been chosen because they do rely on aviation tourism during that time. So if you're thinking that you might get a half-price ticket from Sydney to Melbourne or Adelaide to Brisbane, uh, that's probably not going to be the case. I'm just flagging. (laughs) But they are saying that Melbourne to the Gold Coast could be as cheap as 60 bucks, which would be amazing. Uh, Lots of Queensland hotspots on that list. Airlines will have to prove they have already been flying those routes over the last couple of years in order to get that 50% of the ticket cost covered. Yeah, and this is part of the federal subsidy part of a $1.2 billion package, um, which includes payments to more than 8,000 airline workers who are working on suspended overseas routes as well. So a nice injection there for the tourism industry. And I hope that does stimulate our our domestic tourism because, you know, we're all going to be holidaying in Australia (laughs) in the next 12 months. I think it's been one of the silver linings of COVID, don't you? We've all discovered things in our own backyard that we probably took for granted or didn't realise existed. So instead of going to Europe or Bali, as many people would over winter, (laughs) they're encouraged to stick around at home. Yeah, exactly. So these tickets are going to be available from April 1st, by the way. So if you're planning on uh, jumping on now and getting them, you're not going to find them. (laughs) Also eligible for Qantas, Virgin, Jetstar and some others as well. One of Australia's last brown coal-fired power plants will close four years earlier than expected and it'll be replaced by a large battery. Yes, a very large battery. Uh, So Energy Australia announced yesterday that their Yalorn power station in Victoria's Latrobe Valley would close in 2028 rather than 2032. The Federal Energy Minister, Angus Taylor, says that decision would have a big impact on the plant's 500 workers and also the local community. My heart goes out to the workers and my thoughts are with the the workers and their families at your lawn. This is always a tough time uh, when we see these situations. So this power station has the capacity to supply 20% of Victoria's power roughly, but it has experienced several outages 
in the past few years. Actually, 50, 50 in three years. Uh, Mr Taylor said Victoria will need some reliable energy as that plant winds up, though. We need to make sure that we have the affordability and reliability we need for all the households, small businesses around Victoria, but of course, the heavy industry. I mean, Victoria has been a manufacturing centre for this nation for a long, long time, and it's critical that it has access to affordable, reliable electricity. Yeah, so the battery that is proposed to replace the plant uh, would actually be one of the largest in the world. It has a capacity of 350 megawatts. And a lot of people are saying it just doesn't make sense to have a a dirty coal-fired powered station. And this one in particular is believed to be responsible for about 3% of the nation's emissions and 13% of Victoria's emissions alone, particularly Mm. when renewable energy is getting so much cheaper. Mm, Look, I think this is going to be part of already a growing conversation about how we transition the economy from coal to renewables. They do still have um, seven years, so it's not like it's closing next year. There's a little bit of a chance there to put a plan in place. And reports out of the UK that uh, Meghan Markle actually formally complained to Britain's ITV network, um, which was one of the things that caused controversial British TV host Piers Morgan to very dramatically quit his job as host of Good Morning Britain. I don't know if you saw that cat. He, he walked off. It's all over the internet. If you Google you it, know, you can find it. The cynic in me says it was a bit too dramatic, Jan. Mm. Meghan Markle contacted the commercial broadcaster after Morgan claimed she had lied about having suicidal thoughts and said she was concerned about how the presenter's comments might affect those attempting to deal with their own problems. Yeah, Piers Morgan has been a very outspoken critic of the Duke and Duchess. The last 24 to 48 hours has been no exception. He has stood by his comments, though. I believe in freedom of speech. I believe in the right to uh, be allowed to have an opinion. Uh, If people want to believe Meghan Markle, that's entirely their right. I don't believe almost anything that comes out of her mouth. And I think the damage she's done to the British monarchy and to the Queen at a time when Prince Philip is lying in hospital is enormous and frankly contemptible. So uh, if I have to fall on my sword for expressing an honestly held opinion about Meghan Markle and that diatribe of bilge that she came out with in that interview, so be it. Yeah, I don't know how Piers Morgan can get on a high horse and talk about diatribes, <laughs> but uh, here we are. As I said, he uh, he very dramatically walked off his show yesterday following a backlash and By backlash, I mean that the UK's communication regulator received 41,000 complaints about Piers Morgan's claims. So, And as we know, that's huge because working in TV, many people just yell at their television <laughs> rather than ring or write. So that exactly. is just a drop in the ocean of you the are, number of people offended. <laughs> if, if you are motivated to make a formal complaint, you are very, very angry. And senior executives wanted him to apologise on air, but um, he, he refused to do so. And his co-host, Susanna Reid, addressed the crisis on Good Morning Britain overnight. He is, without doubt, an outspoken, challenging, opinionated, disruptive broadcaster. Also a broadcaster who, it's worth noting, was coming to the end of his contract anyway Mm. and has been linked to a couple of new channels that are launching later this year. But I digress. As well as talking about her mental health, Megan used the interview to air allegations of racism in the royal family, saying a member of the family had questioned what colour skin her and Harry's son would have. All right, that is it for our headlines this morning. Up next, we're talking Australia's defamation laws. 
On the 24th of February, a letter was sent to several members of parliament alleging a cabinet minister had raped a woman in 1988. That letter made headlines right around the country, but one key detail was missing, the name of the accused minister. The things that are being claimed to have happened did not happen, but I do not mean to impose anything more upon your grief. But I hope that you will also understand that because what is being alleged did not happen, I must say so publicly. We now know that minister was Attorney-General Christian Porter, but we only know that because he chose to out himself during a press conference last week. That's the audio that you were just listening to then. So why couldn't, or rather why didn't, the media name him before that, even though His name was all over social media. Certainly a question I've been asked a lot in the last few weeks. Today on The Briefing, we are taking a look at our strict defamation laws. Do they need to catch up with the times? And what do they mean for you? Yes, you. Yes, you. Because actually it is easy to think that defamation laws only affect politicians and celebrities. Funny woman Rebel Wilson says this court drama was never about the money but standing up to a bully. Alan Jones was in the witness box in Brisbane's Supreme Court facing a multi-million dollar defamation claim. Jeffrey Rush versus The Daily Telegraph. Today, the Oscar-winning actor won in the courtroom. Yeah, these are the stories that you hear about often because they come with an eye-watering amount of money that is awarded to the complainant, but actually what you post on Facebook or on social media could land you in court. Scary, right? Well, John Paul Cashin is one of Australia's most prominent media lawyers and a defamation law specialist. He joins us now. John Paul, before we get into it, what even is defamation? Okay, so defamation is basically whenever somebody says something nasty about you that damages your reputation you can sue them in the courts and you can get money for that. And basically what the courts can do is try to help you restore your reputation by giving you money and also giving you a judgment that says, hey, you were wronged. Your your reputation was damaged by what was said about you. So how does that all play out in the courtroom then? What happens is the aggrieved person complains about something that's been published. It might be a story on your radio station and they come to the court and they say, This story that they've published accuses me of being a bully or of being a thief or of saying that I acted unethically in my job and I want to get some damages and some vindication for this. And that person's called the plaintiff. They're the ones who go to the court and they complain about what was published. The publisher is called the defendant and they have to go in and either um, accept that they're wrong, which they sometimes do when they settle a case, or they have to defend it. And in order to defend it, they have to say that they were justified in publishing what they published. The most easy way to prove that what you published was justified is to prove that it was true. Um, There's a lot of uh, history of law on this, and and there's some lawyers who say that the only defence in defamation is truth, because if you can't prove what you were saying is true, then you're going to have a really difficult time in the courts. There are other defences as well. You can prove that you were just expressing your honest opinion about something, or you can say that um, you were publishing a fair report of what happened in Parliament or what happened in the courts. So there are a few other defences as well, but mm. mostly when we're looking at defamation, people are trying to prove 
what was said was true and the person complaining is saying that it wasn't true and that's usually where the battleground happens. The press couldn't name Christian Porter really until he chose to name himself. Why is that? One of the the key things we argue about in defamation law is what does what you published really mean? So we don't look at just the literal words. We look at we look between the lines as to what you're actually saying about somebody. Now, I could publish a story tomorrow that accuses you of being a murderer, but the listener might be left with a whole range of different possible conclusions. They might hear it and think, ah, she definitely did it. She's definitely a murderer. Or they might come away with it and say, yeah, she was accused, but she's definitely innocent and she's been wrongly accused. And then there's something in between that where someone might say, well, I don't know if she did it, but there's there's grounds for looking into that. Often what we're arguing about is is what was the meaning that was published. So with Christian Porter, you know, it depended on how the story was written. I think if somebody was to publish something identifying him saying, I believe that he is a rapist, then that would have been very, very defamatory. But there might have been some scope for publishers to publish something that said, we're not saying it's true, we can't verify the facts, but we are telling you that the allegation's been made and that it's being looked at by the Prime Minister or something like that. What would have happened if he was named by a media organisation? Could Christian Porter have sued? Publishers are always having to toe that line between wanting to tell the story and not wanting to take too much risk. But there's a defence called, the, we generally call it the Government and Political Matters Defence, and it's not very often used. But basically the, the law has said that if you were publishing something that is really important in terms of the government and political process, particularly your ability to elect politicians, then you don't necessarily have to prove that what you're publishing is true. What you have to prove is that your conduct in publishing it was reasonable. We didn't publish the allegations saying they were true. We just said that they'd been made and they were being investigated and they'd been dismissed by the police. And that in all of those circumstances, our conduct was reasonable in publishing. And this was such an important story for the Australian political process that we should be protected in publishing it in the way we did because we did it in a reasonable way. I think had this gone on for a lot longer, there's every chance that some publishers would have published Mm. relying on that. During that time when the media weren't naming Christian Porter, his name was all over social media. Mm. So how does that work? Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I think editors are becoming increasingly frustrated. You know, they know this stuff and they obey the law and feel like they can't publish things. But on social media, you know, it's the Wild West and everything's out there beforehand. Technically, everyone on social media is still uh, subject to the same laws that all of the big news publishers are um, subject to. So they don't have any special protection. But in reality, um, it's just a little bit less likely that people will get sued on social media. It's certainly not impossible that people do get sued reasonably regularly these days. but Why is that? Is that because it's harder to track people down and figure out who they are? I think there's that. It's also a lot more likely that people don't have money. Um, It costs a lot of money to go through the courts and sue for defamation. And if you win, you can get money from the publisher. If you take on average Joe Public, they might not have the money to pay. So you can spend a lot of money going through the courts for nothing. So are these laws outdated then? Like, do you reckon that they need to catch up to this changing media landscape that we have? Yeah, I mean, look, I remember when the laws were reformed about 
um, 15 years ago and people were saying the same thing then. Uh, we need we need to catch up. Yeah, because everything's changed in the last 15 years really, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It really has. Yeah. Look, there's definitely no doubt that, that the laws are starting to lag behind quite a bit in certain areas. There's been some reforms passed in New South Wales. They haven't become law yet, but a few things uh, about online publications that are changing. But yeah, there's certainly a lot of reform, I think, that, that's needed. In particular, I think Facebook publishers, there's been some really big payouts to online publishers, people who've said things on Facebook. People have been ordered to pay, you know, eighty, hundred thousand dollars plus legal costs. Um, people have had to sell their homes and be made bankrupt for saying nasty things on Facebook. And I think that that, you know, seems a bit out of whack. There's people who get workplace injuries and might only get tens of thousands of dollars as a payout, and then somebody's offended on Facebook and they're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars and someone's losing their home. It doesn't seem quite in touch in that regard. Let's talk about how defamation applies to the average person. Like if I go online on my Facebook page or wherever and I post about my local mechanic ripping me off, (laughs) could I be sued? Um, Yeah, you can. 100% you can be sued. And all the same rules apply to you. So um, if you say that, then you and you get sued, you would have to prove that what you said was true. And the important thing to remember with that is... Wow, I don't think a lot of people know that because there's a lot of people mouthing off on Facebook. There are, there are. And quite a lot of them have come through my office over the years. The difficult thing is proving it. You know, once you go into court, um, everyone's seen it on TV shows, you need to be able to prove it. It's it's not um, beyond reasonable doubt in this sort of a case. It's a civil case, so it's balance of probabilities. But the onus of proof is on you to prove it. So you have to be able to take images of the car and get an expert witness to come in and say that the the car was actually fine and the mechanic shouldn't have done the work that they did and that you've been ripped off to the tune of X amount of dollars that you said in your post. And if you, it might be but by the time the case comes to court, the car's been fixed and you don't have that evidence anymore and you're convinced that you, you're right, but you can't prove it in a court and you lose the case. So they have to prove it. Whatever you say on Twitter, the onus is on you to prove that what you said was true. So do you see more and more people coming through your office who are dealing with cases of people saying defamatory stuff about them on social media? Yeah, there's definitely been a spike. I think small businesses know about it. If you're going to write a bad review on a restaurant or with your dentist or, as you say, the mechanic, then there's a chance that they will come after you. I definitely see it quite a lot. So any advice to social media users out there in terms of defamation laws? What would you say? What would you advise them as their lawyer? And you're not getting paid for this advice, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Be nice. Um, uh, try to, if you're going to say something that's critical, make sure you have the facts to back it up and preferably evidence because, you know, that puts you in a stronger position. And then if you do get sued, you can say, well, here's Here's the evidence that I have. Here's the photographs. Here's the text messages. Here's the documents, whatever it is. The other thing is the size of the audience matters in terms of how much money is at play. So if you post something on your Facebook page that's to everybody and a 1,000 people can read it um, or 10,000 people can read it on a, on a large group or something, then your damages will be much higher. If you post something to um, only a handful of people, then the damages are lower. The courts adjust for how many people. So, so be wary of things posted, especially to very, very large groups. 
Mm, that was media lawyer John Paul Cashin there. Dan, what I found interesting about that is even though you might think you're sharing your thoughts on something to your following of a thousand people or 200 people, that can then be reshared. So mm-hmm. you just don't have control over how many people are going to see your comments. And John Paul was saying that he's seen a spike in the number of people coming through his office suing for defamation on social media as well. So more and more people are cotton on to the fact that they can sue other people. So, hey, I'm just um, be careful what you put out there. Make some serious cash out of it too. And that is it for our show this morning. Tomorrow, a royal wrap. It has been a big week in royal news. We're going to take a look at the week that was with the editor-at-large of the Australian Women's Weekly, Juliet Reardon, friend of Fergie, apparently. That's coming up tomorrow. See you then. Listener.